Big Data, the new Big Brother. Today, Tuesday, June 11th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Today, the implications of America's surveillance programs for the citizens of other countries. The U.S. has said, well, PRISM doesn't spy on um, American citizens, but of course that means it could spy on British citizens. Germany isn't too happy about the surveillance either. Also, Russia says it might give asylum to the NSA leaker Edward Snowden, driving home its own message. This is a place where freedoms are protected, and if the West is out to get you, you can come here to find what you really want. Plus, the concern that gathering so much data will alter how government investigates people. Namely, that we hold people responsible not for what they have done in the past, but what they're only predicted to do in the future. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The debate over the U.S. government's surveillance programs has gone global. The revelation that the U.S. National Security Agency, the NSA, is collecting data on foreign communications is raising questions in many nations about whether that violates the privacy of citizens there. Coming up, we'll hear about concerns in Germany. But first, we turn to Britain, where Foreign Secretary William Hague has tried to reassure lawmakers in Parliament that the American surveillance programs do not encroach on U.K. privacy laws. The BBC security correspondent Gordon Carrera joins me now from London. What is known, Gordon, uh, about the British role in helping or cooperating with the U.S. programs? Well, the UK uh, intelligence agency, GCHQ, has an incredibly close relationship with America's NSA. Very, very close indeed. Closer than with any other country in the world. And we do know that the UK agency, GCHQ, has made access through the PRISM system to data. So there were 197 requests in one year by GCHQ for information from this US system. Now, that revelation sparked huge queries, particularly whether uh, GCHQ had used PRISM to get around the UK legal system, which imposes strict controls over when and how information can be accessed. And basically, if you want to intercept someone's communications, you need a warrant, which has to be signed by a minister. And the query was, was PRISM being used to get around that system of warrants and oversight? The Foreign Secretary, William Hague, appeared in Parliament. He gave very few details other than to say, no, nothing was done which went round the existing legal framework. Right. So the suggestion is GCHQ, it's this global communications headquarters, a secret monitoring group, that they would have done the work uh, for PRISM without going through British law? Well, yes, exactly. The, the query was, could PRISM, because of course the US has said, well, PRISM doesn't spy on um, American citizens, but of course that means it could spy on British citizens. And so people were saying, was the British state using PRISM to get information on British citizens and to do so without going through the normal legal channels within the UK? Now, the Foreign Secretary gave what appeared to be a categorical denial to that, although people have questioned whether there are some nuances which might allow it. But on the whole, he was saying, no, that's not the way it operated. 
So the British government has denied that, but could there also exist maybe a reciprocal arrangement uh, whereby the U.S. is getting information on, on British citizens from the British government? Well, you know what? This has always been one of the issues. GCHQ and NSA have such a close relationship. People have always asked, do they use each other to get round their own country's laws? In other words, the NSA isn't supposed to spy on Americans, so mm. could it ask GCHQ to do that? GCHQ isn't supposed to spy on Britons without certain legal authorities. Could it ask NSA to do that? Now, that's always been a suspicion the governments have said, no, the same legal framework applies wherever the information comes from. So break it down there. How do the Brits surveil their own people? How much is publicly known? Well, it's fascinating because there's a huge debate here about some new legislation. It's called the Communications Data Bill, but it's become known as the Snoopers Charter because people (laughs) thought this new new legislation would allow the state to snoop on their communications. What a lot of people didn't realise is the state already had that power. There were actually half a million requests for communications data in 2011 by the police and security services. This isn't the content of calls, but it's which numbers connected with each other, not what they actually said across that phone line, for instance, or in an email. But there's already a huge amount of it going on and people really didn't realise it. And so suddenly this piece of legislation came which simply wanted to expand that to new forms of a communication. They went, we didn't really realise it applied to old forms of communication. This this already happened. So I think it just shows that actually there is a, a fundamental lack of understanding amongst the public about what the state can already do and has the potential to do. And I think that's a big issue for government. They don't want to talk about this because they say you talk about it too much, you tip off the bad guys. You let them know what you're doing. They adjust their behaviour. You can't collect intelligence. You can't stop terrorist attacks. But equally, you've got an issue about public confidence. The BBC's Gordon Carrera there. Elsewhere in Europe today, politicians condemn the Obama administration's data snooping programs. At an emergency meeting of the European Parliament, lawmakers criticize those programs as unworthy of a close ally. Dutch politician Judith Sargentini told the BBC that Europeans appeared to have no legal protection against being spied on by the U.S. If it wasn't so sad, I would have laughed last Friday when Obama said, uh, no worries, people, this is only for foreigners, not for Americans. And the problem is this, the Fourth Amendment that protects uh, American citizens' privacy does not fly for us Europeans. If you think your data is being used in the wrong way in the U.S., you cannot go to court and fight it. Well, one European country that's very concerned about all this is Germany. Thomas Hören teaches telecommunications law at the University of Munster. What's been the German reaction to the leaks uh, about the scope of prison, Thomas? Well, it was really a shock, a big, big shock, because, you know, Germany has the most radical and restrictive regulation system regarding uh, privacy and data protection. And when we heard that German citizens are stored in this data of the U.S. government, we were, of course, not only amazed, but we were puzzled. And now there is a heavy discussion going on. What can we do against the American policy? And remind us why Germans are so particularly skittish about this kind of surveillance and why the protections there are so vigilant. We had the very hard times in the, during the Nazi regime with a big collection of personal data uh, at these times. So Germans hate big governments collecting a lot of data. So President Obama has been eager to reassure people around the globe that the U.S. is not listening to your telephone calls. Do Germans find comfort in the, hey, just trust us? No. I think Obama will get a big problem when he comes to Germany next week. Mm. Um, the last time he was here, we, we, we saw him as a kind of hero, the big pioneer. We, we loved him. 
But now he will get a lot of critical um, debates um, and a lot of people who protest against him. In recent years, Thomas, Germany has been active in going after big internet companies like Google and Facebook on privacy issues. Now, does the fact that these companies seem complicit in PRISM also affect the way Germans view them? Well, this morning, the, one of the most radical um, data protection commissioner gave an interview in the Frankfurter Allgemeine, and he said this story in the United States demonstrates that everything he believed is right now and that he should even fight more against Facebook and uh, Google. Did he say how he's going to fight? Well, sue, sue, sue on the one side, which is a little bit uh, not very effective. He tried to sue against Facebook, but he lost the battle. But he will push uh, the whole matter in Brussels because this was a really bad timing. In Brussels, we discussed how can we um, bring together the American system and the European system regarding a new data protection regulation. But of course, nobody will really believe um, all these American lobbyists which are running around in Brussels. So uh, it will be a heavy push to have a strong and restrictive data, European data protection regulation. And as you said, uh, President Obama is going to Berlin uh, next week, uh, meeting with uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Uh, You suspect that these revelations about the surveillance program could make that visit a bit tense. Yeah, I've heard already rumors that there will be a lot of protesters going to Berlin and uh, to uh, to have a chance at least to articulate their their fury regarding the matter. And I think that the newspapers will will not be very charming to Obama. I think. Thomas Heron, telecommunications law professor at the University of Munster. Thanks for your time. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Phone records, emails, search terms, texts, live chats. There's so much information out there about you, about me, about everyone that experts call it big data. The NSA is building a facility in the Utah desert, 1.5 million square feet, just to store it all. So is big data the insidious big brother of our times? Not quite, says Victor Meyer Schoenberger. He co-authored the book Big Data, a revolution that will transform how we live, work and think. Big data is phenomenally useful in order to predict certain things, predict human behavior, for example, or predict when a car is breaking down. But they are predictions and they're based on probabilities. And as such, they may be wrong. They give you an 80% chance that you're right. Uh, That's good enough for many decisions, but that's not, for example, good enough to say whether or not somebody is guilty or innocent. Give us a real example of, of the kind of predictions that big data has actually achieved. Google is able to predict the spread of the seasonal flu uh, by just looking at what people search on the internet. They look at the billions of search terms that people look for uh, online every single day and are able to correlate that to look for similarities between these search terms and the spread of the past flu and use that as a model to predict uh, where the flu is going. And it is accurate. It's still a prediction and it has an 80%, a 90% accuracy rate. That means that, uh, you know, eight out of 10 times it's right, two out of 10 times it's wrong. Now, one of the concerns that you outline in in, uh, your book is propensity or using big data predictions to punish people even before they act, uh, kind of a minority report scenario. Can you explain what you mean? And is this actually happening right now? Uh, Indeed, that is the general dark side of big data, namely that we hold people responsible not for what they have done in the past, but what they're only predicted to do in the future. That sounds like Minority Report. In fact, that's exactly the direction that this is leading to. And the problem is that uh, people who would be punished 
for only what they're predicted to do, could never prove their innocence. We are not there yet, but in many instances, we are sort of beginning to inch towards that direction. There are law enforcement agencies in the United States, in many cities, for example, that use data analysis to predict which neighborhoods uh, will have what kind or type of crime at what day of the week and at what time of the day. And so they then send more officers to patrol there at that time. That might look like an innocent uh, allocation of resources, but if they're always police cars in a particular neighborhood, say a minority neighborhood, that also then sort of perpetuates stereotypes, doesn't it? So, I mean, we kind of set this up as being in the realm of science fiction and Minority Report, that film, famous film with Tom Cruise. But I mean, are, are you personally concerned that this is where things are headed? I am greatly concerned. We're all focused on privacy. What we overlook is the fact that big data may be abused uh, for understanding the why, and big data cannot tell us the why. Now, one of your big pushes, Victor, is to figure out how data might not live forever. Uh, first of all, why don't you want data to be around forever? The ability of humans to forget is really central to humans making sense of the world. As we forget the details of what we experience, what we see uh, every day, we are able to generalize and to abstract, to see the forest rather than the individual trees. And so human forgetting performs a very important function. As we undo human forgetting through digital remembering, we make it harder for people to abstract, to see the forest rather than just the individual trees, but also to be able to forgive behaviors of the past. So how do you sift through what's good big data and bad big data? Because it sounds like what you're saying is that big data is not inherently evil. Not at all. The most important next step, I think, for us is to understand these qualities of big data, that they make it very much easier in one way to understand the world and to sort of gain new insights, but also offer a particular new dark side that we need to safeguard against. We need to have a debate about that. Victor Meyer Schoenberger, co-author of Big Data, thanks very much for speaking with us. Thank you, Marco. Still ahead, sharing data about where to find a home-cooked meal in far-flung places on The World from Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Across the world, more college and university classes are being taught in English. The world's language editor, Patrick Cox, is here to talk about that. And, Patrick, we know English has spread to countries, continues to spread to countries around the globe. Is this just an inevitable result of that? Well, before we get too caught up in the inevitability of the spread of English, consider this. If you were a top science student from 200 years ago, you will be studying in this language. Hallo, mein Name ist Johanna Bischoff und ich studiere molekulare Biotechnologie. Das Tolle an der Biotechnologie... Okay, so that's a German student of molecular biotechnology. Uh, that's from today, by the way, Marco, not too much. Okay, I was wondering where the recording came from. But, but it was long ago that the language of science flipped from German to English. It means that many of Europe's elite science programs today, they offer courses in English as much as they do in, in the local native tongue. 
Are there some countries more open to this idea of switching to English uh, for science, uh, even in Europe, where you have some of the world's oldest universities? Oh, for sure. Germany is kind of in the middle, but you, you have countries like the Netherlands that um, they offer entire college programs in English. The idea is to prepare local students for a, a global career and also to attract uh, students from all over the world. One in, unintended consequence of this is that some Brits, for example, they go to these Dutch schools, not just for a semester or for a year abroad or what have you, they go and take the entire degree program because the tuition is a little bit cheaper in, mm. in the Netherlands than it is back in Britain. Then on the other hand, you have countries like France or Spain that have been much more resistant to introducing English in universities. In fact, in France, you may have heard this, the French parliament is, is currently debating a measure that would allow for a little more English teaching in French universities, but there's a lot of opposition to that. Okay, so that's a good backgrounder to the story we're about to hear uh, out of Italy. What's going on there? Well, this is about the Polytechnic University of Milan. This is the MIT of Italy. And it recently announced that it wanted to switch all teaching, all of it, into English. Mm. And now it's dealing with uh, some spirited opposition to that idea. Okay, let's hear the report now from Megan Williams in Milan. Computer science professor Giuseppe Serrazzi starts his weekly lecture at Milan's prestigious Polytechnic University with a brief introduction in Italian. Then he switches to English. I want to alert them that everything would be in English. The plan was for all professors teaching master-level courses here to do that. The university's rector, Giovanni Azzoni, boldly announced last year that by 2015, all postgraduate courses and some undergrad programs were going to be offered in English only. Atsoni says the switch to English is needed to keep attracting top Italian students who want the option of eventually working outside Italy. To attract Italian, you need to have an international environment. And to have an international environment, you must be able to attract international students. And English is, is fundamental. Italian at present is an entry barrier. But it's a move that met with fierce opposition from many of the university's 1,400 faculty members. They launched a petition calling the switch to English unconstitutional, saying it limited the freedom to teach and study in Italian and put Italy's cultural heritage at risk. Last week, an Italian regional court agreed. That argument has been used all the time. It has been used in the Netherlands, it has been used in France, in, uh, in Germany. Professor Hans de Witt no is an expert on the internationalization uh, 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 of higher education at the Cattolica University in Milan. He calls the Italian court's decision a shock. He thinks what's really happening is that some older professors understandably fear that a switch to English will sideline them professionally. But research shows it's what students want, says DeWitt, adding that those universities that have made the switch successfully have done so discreetly and slowly. He thinks the Polytechnic University's big mistake was announcing it would impose the change in just two years. By force from top down to say everything in the postgraduate level has to be in English, in two years uh, you create uncertainty and resistance and the backlash of that might be that, unfortunately, it has, an, on the short term, a negative impact. I think on the long term, it's a process they cannot stop. And number 19, it's false. 
because if you've ever been on holiday in the U.S., you should tip in general. Tip in the restaurant, tip the taxi driver. Also because taxis cost much less. But tip is something you pay more. As part of the plan to switch to English, all profs and support staff not already fluent in English have been taking weekly ESL classes since the fall. But some are there against their will, and others say a lesson a week just isn't enough to be able to actually work in English. Students here agree. Computer science student Javier Huelpa is from Argentina. He says it's ironic he had to pass a stringent English exam to get in when many of his professors would flunk it. Because you have two kinds of teachers here. The ones that have done a PhD or a master outside Italy, uh, especially in, in the USA or, or in Britain, and they speak very clear English, and the Italian ones that have done the PhD or the master within Italy, and they have learned English locally. So they speak with the Italian cadence, uh, which is, even for international students, we say, you don't speak well. <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> Despite the problems in switching to English, students like Javier and the university's rector agree that a decision not to switch to English would only limit their future choices. In the meantime, the Polytechnic continues to struggle towards its English-only goal, both inside the classrooms and now inside Italy's courtrooms, too. For The World, I'm Megan Williams in Milan. And the world's Patrick Cox is back with us. Is this switch from local language to English, Patrick? Is it accelerating? I think in Europe it is, and it's partly because of something that many non-native English-speaking Europeans have, have put into place themselves. It's something called the Bologna process, and, and that's got nothing to do with how you, know, you make that sandwich meat. Okay, right. This is an agreement among European governments that, that regularizes higher ed across a single economic zone. Many countries have their own idiosyncratic education systems. And interestingly, a lot of them have bachelor degrees, they have doctoral degrees, but they don't have graduate degrees. So they're introducing graduate degrees now as part of this regularization. And it's in those new programs where English is most heard. It's, it's easy to introduce English into a program that didn't exist before. And this new push for English, is it across all subjects? Well, it tends to be for business, also technology and science. When it comes to studying things like law, the humanities, that tends to be much more domestically oriented. So you're more likely to be studying in your own native tongue. Well, for more on English, other languages as well, and all issues linguistic for that matter, you can listen to the podcast, The World in Words, that Patrick produces at theworld.org slash language. Patrick Cox, thanks a lot. You're very welcome, Marco. You're listening to The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a global meal-sharing network for travelers. It all started when a tourist in Cambodia yearned for a home-cooked meal and asked his hotel manager for help. When I said that, he instantly kind of lit up and he was like, great. He's like, let me find you a home-cooked meal. And so I was like, great, the adventure begins now. The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities.
Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. There are so many angles to the Edward Snowden story that are intriguing. One interesting story on its own is whether Snowden was wise in fleeing to Hong Kong in order to expose top-secret U.S. surveillance. He then left his Hong Kong hotel, but from there... The plot grows cold. Now it seems Russian President Vladimir Putin may be interested in granting asylum to Snowden. Miriam Elder is the Moscow correspondent for The Guardian newspaper. Um, Just generally, Miriam, uh, what has been the Russian reaction to the news of the Edward Snowden leak? You know, until today, it's been surprisingly muted. And the coverage only really started uh, getting going today when Putin's spokesman gave a quick interview to a leading newspaper this morning saying that Russia would be ready to consider an asylum request by him. And then all the coverage kind of exploded. Why do you think Putin's press secretary would say something like that? It kind of fits into this line that the Russian government has had for about a year now, uh, if not longer, kind of positioning itself as a potential home to anybody who wants to reject the West. So the the most famous example so far is Gerard Depardieu, the actor who renounced his French citizenship in protest over uh, rising taxes in France and was welcomed with open arms in Russia. So I think this is just part of that trend. But last year, uh, Julian Assange was given his own TV show on uh, the state TV channel, propaganda channel, Russia Today. So this is more than just a, this seems more serious in some way. I don't know if it's more serious or if I would put them all in the same category in terms of the Russian government. I think they really see it as a potential propaganda coup, saying anybody who rejects the West, you know, be it just a a kind of show like the Depardieu thing or something more serious like uh, Snowden, that they would just be welcomed in Russia because this is a place where, you know, freedoms are protected. And if the West is out to get you, you can come here to find what you really want, which is, of course, ridiculous. But that's the position that they've been putting forward. And do you think the the Snowden episode is seen by the Russian government as uh, a bigger propaganda coup? Yeah, of course. But we have to remember that Snowden, as far as we know, hasn't made any requests to the Russian government. And if we take him at his word, he does want to find asylum in a country that shares similar values to his own, uh, which one would think Russia doesn't fall into that, considering its own human rights abuses here. But of course, it would be a huge propaganda coup. And I think that's why what I took today's message to be is, is them kind of slowly reaching out to him. Back to what you said earlier, the fact that uh, the Snowden story is a little uh, snoozers for some Russians. What's that due to? Is it partly because Russia spied so much on its own citizens? I think that's part of it. And just kind of everybody here functions under the assumption that that continues today. Russia's spy world is very opaque. I would say every average Russian citizen functions under the assumption that the Federal Security Service can tap into their phones and are tapping into their phones and emails as often as they'd like. It's a Soviet relic, that way of thinking. Right. Uh, And speaking of Soviet relics, Vladimir Putin himself, uh, as a former KGB officer, is seen as something of the ultimate spy. Where does he stand on this brave new world of data monitoring and digital mining? It's interesting you would ask that because he just uh, came out with his first thoughts on the subject in an interview Mm. with Russia Today. And he said uh, this sort of thing, spying on phones and Internet, it's it's fine if it's done within the foundations of the law. So he says in Russia, you need a court order to have these things done. And if it's done the right way, then it's fine. But what America did was illegal and therefore not correct. And as far as whistleblowers, how does Russia view whistleblowers in their own country? 
that to me is the most interesting angle of this whole case because you have Russia, you know, holding up Julian Assange and Snowden as these heroes. When you look at how Russia treats its own whistleblowers, it's a terrible record from people like the journalist Anna Politkovskaya, who was exposing abuses in Chechnya, who was shot dead in her apartment, to Sergei Magnitsky, who exposed a corruption scheme among the police and tax police, who was killed in prison. Uh, anybody who has stuck their neck out in Russia has ended up dead or in jail. So it's very odd for them to be trying to welcome Snowden with open arms. And uh, Miriam, for you as a journalist in Russia, what's this like right now watching this whole thing unfold, especially given Cold War history and the spying that went on there, here, everywhere during that period? For me, the most interesting thing is is how Russia, after a few days, a few days after this leak uh, first came out, how now it's trying to manipulate it to its own advantage. Um, I think that most people will see the ridiculousness of its appeal to Snowden to come and live in Russia. Uh, but it's interesting that they would even make that effort. The Guardian newspaper is Miriam Elder in Moscow. Thanks so much as always, Miriam. Thank you. A road of many names is on our radar screen for today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for the oldest north-south road in New York City, It began long before Europeans landed in Manhattan. It was first a foot trail running the length of the island. Natives called it the Wikasgek Trail. In the 17th century, Dutch colonists called it that too at first. Then they came up with other names like Hirestraat and Bredewig. That last one was modified later by English colonists to become the name this road still has today. You can even hear it in the Dutch word. So what is the current name of this long historic thoroughfare? Here's one last clue. A three-mile section of this road running through the Washington Heights neighborhood was recently renamed. It's now known as Juan Rodriguez Way in honor of the city's earliest known non-native immigrant. We'll hear more about that when we return with the answer in a few minutes. You ever heard of Couchsurfing? It's a global network that lets you find a place to sleep in the home of a stranger. Well, now there is a similar online network, this one for food, meal sharing. It aims to help travelers connect with a home-cooked meal anywhere in the world. Andrea Wenzel went to see what the founders of meal sharing are cooking up in Chicago. So I'm making some uh, a peanut sauce. Jay Savsani admits he's no gourmet cook just a few steps above instant ramen or mac and cheese. But it's Global Sharing Day, an effort to break the world record for the most meals shared. It's going to be a massive meal, and the exciting thing about, about that is that there's meals going on around the world. Jay's interest in sharing food began as a tourist in Cambodia. Eating in restaurants, something was missing. We're in this beautiful country. We're exploring, trying new things and stuff like that, but we weren't able to be in somebody's home or have real food. So Jay took matters into his own hands. He went to the front desk of his hotel and told the manager he was looking for a home-cooked meal. When I said that, he instantly kind of lit up and he was like, great. He's like, let me find you a home-cooked meal. And so I was like, great, the adventure begins now. The meal was everything Jay had hoped. The food was good. Conversations meandered from Michael Jackson to Obama to Pol Pot. Jay says on the rickshaw ride home, he had an epiphany. There needs to be a digital solution to recreate the spontaneity of that evening. So you don't have to awkwardly go to your to the hotel lobby to have this happen. 
let's build a community of people around the world that want to make this happen. And so Jay set out to create what he calls Facilitated Serendipity, an online network to share meals with strangers around the world. Okay, uh, so I've come to the homepage of mealsharing.org, and instantly I can see basically every continent with meal shares on it. Jay says you can now go to 250 cities worldwide and have a home-cooked meal for free. We have Chicago, Berlin, Sao Paulo, Brazil, London, Cape Town. Mealsharing.org users make profiles. Each one lists the kind of meals they like to cook. And so I can click, I see here, freshest food with a Spanish twist, or exotic plus vegan, or traditional Italian. This is kind of funny, unexperienced but funny cook. And at Mealsharing, we kind of support that kind of feel. We We kind of want to strip the pretentiousness out of food so that hosts don't have to feel like they have to make something that would be on top chef. Hi. And Phil. Hi, Phil and Emily. Hi, Emily. This is my friend Federico from Colombia. Jay says he's met a range of people, from a Palestinian woman in Paris to a Brazilian couple in Berlin. And he says it allows him to travel locally. In Chicago, he's eaten with the Mexican family. And Phil from Alabama taught him how to cook proper fried chicken. I got uh, chicken tenders, I uh, marinate them in buttermilk, you know, a heart attack on a plate, but hey, what a way to go. Phil also brought couch surfers from Colombia and Australia for Global Sharing Day. Alex is visiting from Sydney. I've got a collection of salads and like an empanada. Yeah, this is amazing. (laughs) We can kind of use technology to kind of redefine what it means to be a stranger. Like couchsurfing or Airbnb, meal sharing is part of a trend, what some call collaborative consumption. But it's really an old idea. Digital allows us to do what we used to do, and meeting up with strangers and hitchhiking and hosting travelers for food or accommodations. I think this time around, we can use technology to make it even safer. He says meal sharing will start verifying users' addresses and phone numbers electronically to help ensure people really are who they say. Everything is smells yeah. like a bag. It's like things from all over the world happening in like a 10-foot space. Yeah. Meal sharing has a ways to go before it becomes mainstream, but it is gaining attention. Jay spoke to the British Parliament about how sharing meals can build community and promote healthy home-cooked food. And at least at this Global Sharing Day event, the movement seems to be gaining some well-fed converts. For The World, I'm Andrea Wenzel, Chicago. Okay, now that dinner is taken care of, let's get the answer to our geo-quiz. New York City's oldest north-south road, dating back to pre-colonial times even, is today known as Broadway. But a three-mile stretch of Upper Broadway is also known by another name. Now, it was renamed to honor the man who, according to some historical records, was the city's first non-native immigrant. Reporter Von Diaz's story comes to us via Feet in Two Worlds, a project that brings the work of immigrant journalists to public radio. On a recent evening in New York City, artist Maya Garcia gears up for a night of theater. First, she stands on stage and asks the audience a question. Who knows who New York City's first immigrant was? Juan Rodriguez, the first non-Indian immigrant to settle in Manhattan. He wasn't Dutch or English, rather from what is now the Dominican Republic. Garcia is bringing Rodriguez's little-known story to the stage. But it's not the only tribute he's getting here. Three miles of Broadway, 
the part that runs through heavily Dominican neighborhoods like Washington Heights, was recently renamed Juan Rodriguez Way. So to hear more about this early New Yorker's life, I went on a stroll down Broadway with Garcia. So we're walking down Broadway from uh, 167th Street, which is now called Juan Rodriguez Way, or as Armando Batista likes to say, J.R. Way. J.R. Way, baby! That's Armando Batista. He's an actor with Dominican roots who plays Juan Rodriguez on stage. It's personal because this story, it just feels personal because it feels like someone that I can look up to and I can be inspired by and take on the task of using him as a symbol to inspire others and, and other young people. Batista and Garcia's play reimagines Rodriguez's immigrant life, what he first saw and did when he got to Manhattan in the early 1600s. Batista reads a few lines from his play. We all come from somewhere. Even the Lenape, who lived here for centuries, their ancestors traveled across the Bering Strait and spread across the American continent like so many fingers. So who belongs here? I suppose you belong wherever you choose to stay and plant seeds. We all come from somewhere and return to the earth in the end, dust to dust. But how do we know that Rodriguez was the city's first non-Native American immigrant? Scholars have long believed the Dutch settled here first, about 400 years ago. But there's enough consensus now to rethink that. Anthony Stevens Acevedo at the Dominican Studies Institute at City College of New York dusted off the research that confirmed Rodriguez's existence. So we know he spent around a year here. We know he was a pretty independent guy. And uh, he seems to be uh, a fellow with a very strong sense of his own dignity and independence. We also know he was a free black man who came aboard a Dutch merchant ship in 1613 and insisted on remaining in New York, even threatening to jump overboard should he be forced back on the ship. Stevens Acevedo then gave me a tour of the Institute's archives. That on this particular line that I'm pointing at you here, first of all, I'm going to show to you, this is the letter S, a very convoluted S, and the letter T for saint, okay? And I'm sure you'll be able to figure out this one here that says D-O-M-I-N-G-O, Domingo. So this refers to Santo Domingo, the island. He's pointing out letters and documents that gave clues to Rodriguez's existence. They're scans of 16th and 17th century papers, stained yellow by age. The Dominican Institute's director, Ramona Hernandez, says she's excited to see artists like Batista and Garcia bring Rodriguez's story to life. And I think that people are taking ownership of the story because it resembles who they are. It represents who they are. It resonates with who they are. And Garcia, the actor, she sees potential for Rodriguez's story to have an impact on more than just the Dominican community. We want young people, especially young people of color in New York City, to have a founding father they can call their own. The next step, some historians say, is to move Juan Rodriguez from just being a new street name to hearing his story in the classroom. For The World, I'm Vaughn Diaz, New York. Vaughn's story is part of our ongoing Global Nation coverage, looking into the stories of a changing America and its people. And through those stories, we're finding out that our language is changing along with our culture, right on down to the signage we see in our daily lives. Billboards, flyers, street signs. We're curious how you see language changing where you live. Shoot the pics on Instagram and use the hashtag GlobalNation. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. 
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Nearly two weeks of protests at Taksim Square in Istanbul in Turkey. And for police and the government there, it looks like they've reached the breaking point. In a televised speech, Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan defended police intervention and the use of tear gas and rubber bullets in the square today. The CBC's Derek Stoffel was at Taksim Square earlier today. Derek, after some fairly peaceful days of protesters occupying the square, camped out, did the heavy police presence and their actions catch them off guard? I think so. Um, you know, there was some warning early this morning that uh, the police were coming into the square itself, and they were going to remove some of the banners from. Uh, you know, there were statues, and there's a couple of buildings where protesters had hung banners. But all the people I spoke to who were camping out in the park, Gezi Park, right near the square, said they didn't expect the police to really respond with such force. I was there for quite a while and saw uh, a lot of tear gas. You know, just dozens and dozens of canisters of tear gas being used and water cannon to try to push the protesters back. At several points, they fired tear gas into the park. So that caught certainly protesters off guard. So I've been following you on on Twitter, Derek, and the narrative you relate is kind of eerie from this peace and love moment a few days ago with tents everywhere, free food and water, to basically today trying to evict the protesters. What's the scene? What's going on? Well, it really is a little bit confusing when you think about what the police accomplished today. But, you know, from talking to people in the square and away from the square, there's a sense that this is done to sort of keep the Turkish middle class happy, that they don't uh, overall support these protests because it's seen as, you know, a black mark on Turkey's image. Turkey, of course, seen favorably in the West, uh, you know, as a model of secular democracy. So this is sort of to appease the people well beyond the central squares of Istanbul, Ankara, and a number of other cities, and to say to them that, you know, the government is in charge. We saw that from the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Erdogan today, who said, uh, you know, the protesters should leave. This will play out on international TV screens around the world, but the the message at home is that the government is in control. Tomorrow, uh, there are plans for Prime Minister Erdogan to meet with uh, the protest organizers. Do do you think that that's going to take place? And Even if it does, do the protesters have any room to negotiate with Mr. Erdogan? The meeting is still on the schedule. Um, Prime Minister Erdogan is supposed to meet protest leaders uh, in Ankara, the capital. He's not even coming here to Istanbul, sort of the epicenter of of the demonstrations. The big problem with it is, you know, there's so many different groups in the square and in the park. There's environmentalists, there's, you know, labor groups, there's communists, and they don't all speak with one voice. So there's one group that's sort of meeting with him tomorrow. But I can't see, and the protesters can't see, how they can resolve all their various issues, whether it's, you know, tearing down trees in a park or, you know, the perceived authoritarian way that uh, Erdogan uh, governs Turkey. So there really is little hope that this meeting tomorrow will bring some sort of resolution to this. Derek, uh, you got a small dose of tear gas today. How does all this activity strike you? The fact that the government went in with such force does surprise me. There's news crews from around the world and the the local TV stations and the papers are covering it. So, um, you know, they've decided to take a hard line and um, somewhat surprising to me. But uh, at the end of the day, keeping the, you know, the Turkish middle class happy is what uh, Erdogan needs to do. And he said today he will not uh, back down in the face of that. The CBC's Derek Stoffel in Istanbul there. One thing both government and protesters can agree on is Kemal Ataturk, modern Turkey's founder. His vision of a secular modern nation is often invoked by both sides. Part of that vision was Western classical music. He wanted Turks to embrace it. 
Matthew Brunwasser visited a fine arts school in southeast Turkey to find out how that's going. Ninety years after the founding of the Republic, Western classical music is still a hard sell in Turkey. Turks have been arguing for generations about whether their country belongs to the West or the East. Parts of Turkey border Greece and Bulgaria, but this state school in southeastern Turkey is only a few hours' drive from Syria and Iraq, far away from the grand halls of Paris and Vienna. The state has expended enormous effort and resources to popularize Western classical music in Turkey, but it hasn't gained much traction, even here in this fine arts high school. Mustafa Baran teaches music theory. He says his students learn to appreciate Western classical music with their minds, but don't really feel it in their hearts. Their approach to the music is strange. It's just conceived of as a professional occupation. Classical musicians are just seen as doing a job. They don't see it as real music, which is meant to provide relaxation and pleasure for the people listening to it. Turkey has strong musical traditions of its own, but Turkish music is completely different from Western music. In its own universe of structure, time signatures, and rhythms, locals prefer arabesque, a hybrid Turkish-Arabic pop, which makes educated Westernized Turks shudder. <laughs> The fine arts school here in Diyarbakir was the first in this underdeveloped region. It has attracted some high-profile support. Thousands of donors helped finance the construction of the building. Pop singer Sazen Aksu sold one of her houses to raise three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. For many Westernized Turks, promoting European classical music is a way to spread the values of Western civilization. But despite decades of state prodding. Locals still feel that Western classical music is something foreign, says student Omer Chavur. They find classical music cold, Chavur says. They don't find it exciting or interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm listening Dvorak, Elgar, Bach. Cellist Mazlum Mizrak says his fellow students hardly listen to the music. They even find his taste in music a bit odd. Yeah, hani dediğim gibi onların hep sürekli şey türkü 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 pek öyle şey değil. Switching to Turkish, Mizrak says that because they have always listened to folk music and only Turkish folk music, other music from outside doesn't attract them at all. Zuleha Aranjak plays the piccolo. She finds classical music refreshing. Classical music sounds good to me. It cleans out my ears. We're always hearing arabesque everywhere. Teachers at the school have recently formed a volunteer chamber orchestra with 23 members. It's Diyarbakir's first. They've already performed several times in the city. The public response so far, they say, has been hopeful. For the world, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Diyarbakir, Turkey. Get a look at the first chamber orchestra in Southeast Turkey. We posted a slideshow at theworld.org. 
From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for joining us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.